Welcome to Israel War Briefing, a podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. In each episode, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. Today, I'm joined by Yaakov Katz, the former editor of the Jerusalem Post and a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, a think tank based in Jerusalem. Yaakov is the author of several books, including Shadow Strike, about the Israeli operation to destroy the uh, Syrian nuclear program in 2007, uh, Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, which speaks for itself. So, Yaakov, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome. Thank you, Jake. So just to clear something up, first of all, we're not actually related. No. <laughs> <laughs> People have asked if we're brothers, um, but I think we're just descended from the same Ashkenazi Jew or Jews who uh, didn't weren't known for their hair, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're bald, bearded, and angry, which is which is a type. It's a type. It's I, I, I sort of think so. that we're a bit like Leo Raz in that. Something. Well, yeah, he's a little more <laughs> famous and successful, but you know, it's all relative. Also, we have the same name, so that would be weird if we were brothers. Anyway, um, let's let's talk about what we're here to talk about, which is um, America. So yesterday, uh, President Biden signed an executive order against settler violence. Can you tell us exactly what that was and, and what it means? The Biden administration for a long time has been speaking about settler violence. And I think we have to be honest and say clearly that there is an issue, right? For too long, there have been a group of extreme, mostly settlers, although we don't know. I think it's it, it's a problem to even use that term because it could be right-wing activists who come from even outside the West Bank. But if we roll with the term, we're talking about uh, Jews who live primarily in the West Bank who are engaging in violent activity against Palestinian residents. Now, it could be an incident, for example, of where Palestinians are trying to harvest their olive grove. And then we've all seen these videos of where mass settlers with bats or rocks come down a mountain from the settlement that's up but on top and start uh, fighting with them. Uh, you know, Then occasionally there's a shooting incident. And then comes the question, what happened, right? Why did someone get shot? Uh, can you there just are... talk about since what's happened since October the seventh? Because that's been uh, that was a moment where suddenly it became much more intense. A hundred percent. So I mean, but I just think the context is important because it's something that's been on the radar of the administration for a long time, and and the Democrats have been talking about it since October seventh, while everyone's eyes have been on the south and Gaza and a bit to the north with Hezbollah. There has been a major increase in violence, mostly coming from Palestinians towards Israelis, but also there have been clashes between settlers and Palestinians. And, and the administration often, you'll hear it from Secretary Blinken or even President Biden and others who, when they're voicing support for Israel and saying Israel should defend itself and we support Israel's right, right? Let's keep in mind the Biden administration has not called for a ceasefire in, in Gaza. But at the same time, and the other side of the mouth, they'll say, we also need to see a crackdown and more action taken against settler violence. And what, and what, and what happened? Sort of, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Just give us a sense of the scale of how many people, how many incidents, how many deaths, that sort right. of feel. Yeah. So it, it's tough to exactly 
put your finger on what what the numbers are. We, we know of dozens, if not hundreds of incidents. Now, what is the definition of an incident? It could be like I referred before, clashes at an olive grove. What that is, we don't exactly know. And and I've long been critical of the IDF and the police for not doing enough to, to crack down and stop that. There are a number of Palestinians who have been killed. I think it's about 10 at this point. And they are not necessarily in the last few, mo few months, in the last year. And who exactly killed them, what the circumstances were for them being killed, these are things that are being investigated. One of the people, for example, who is apparently sanctioned by uh, the Americans at the moment is a known right-wing extremist who's actually sitting, as we speak, in administrative detention in an Israeli prison. So it's not as if the, the Israeli judicial system is not working, right? You could say it's not hard enough, it's not aggressive enough, but, but there is a rule of law in this country. We could be critical of it, but, but it does exist. Is 10 really the right number? Because if you look online, you'll find reports about hundreds of Palestinians being shot by Israeli radical settlers, whatever you want to call them, since October the 7th. Is is the true number really 10? No, no. Hundreds. There, there have been hundreds of Palestinians who've been killed over the last year by Israeli security forces. For example, we saw just this past week that amazing video of the Israeli commandos disguised as Palestinians going to that Janine hospital. And where they, this part we didn't see on video, but where they eliminated three, what Israel says were Hamas operatives in the midst of planning an October 7th style attack. So those are, for the most part, 90 plus percent, if not more, 99% uh, probably, of, are, are killed, at least according to Israel, legitimately because these are terrorists. Occasionally, there are also civilians caught in the, caught in the crossfire. But the number of incidents where some radical extremist Jew picks up a, an M16 and opens fire callously at some random Palestinian, these are far and few, rarely happen. It's nothing of a phenomenon that I think we need to talk about to the level, at least, that the Biden administration needs to issue an executive order and start to sanction people. Right. That's pretty and that, extreme. And that's a, that's a really important distinction, isn't it? Because numbers, you know, hundreds and hundreds are bandied around online, and it, but it's it's a way of merging um, you know, clashes with the arm with Israel's armed forces with terrorist elements um, and extremist activity, and making out as if they're all one and the same thing. Well, I mean, that's exactly my problem with this. I, again, I have no tolerance for any of this violence. However, my problem is with the moral equivalency that is trying to be created here between Hamas, a state-sponsored and a state actor, which is basically a systemic, uh, a system, systematic organization of terrorism with tens of thousands of fighters, tens of thousands of rockets, hundreds of kilometers of tunnels, use of human shields, massive massacre of, of Jew, Jews and Israelis, to say that and then talk about a small, tiny fringe group of people who occasionally take the law into their own hands. It's almost as if, Jake, I would say that because Chicago, where I'm from, is like the murder capital of America, that all of Americans are murderers. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's it's disingenuous at, at the best. And it's 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 actually, I think what it really does in in is it emboldens terrorism to an extent. And and I think it shows conf moral confusion by the Biden administration, because again, I, I again, I want to say or repeat for the 10th time, I have zero tolerance for this, but we're in a war, which is a clash of civilizations. Right. And to say those two things at the same time makes it seem like both sides are to blame. And, so and I don't yeah, think so, that's so, the case. 
And so let's just back up and drill down into that idea. So, so what your your contention is that the Biden administration is somehow seeking to sanction these these radicals, let's call them radicals, as part of a balancing act with its stance on Hamas. Why do you think that that's the case? Well, I think that the Biden administration, and and let me just say it at the top of this answer that they've been remarkable when it comes to the war with uh, with that Israel's been waging against Hamas. They, the fact that we're 120 plus days into this and Biden has yet to call for a comprehensive ceasefire, the support, the continued delivery and supply of weapons and spare parts for Israel, this is all of critical importance and the diplomatic cover. But I think that Biden, who's now, as we know, engaged in a political battle with what's likely to be Donald Trump as his contender, he needs to start to break a little more to the left. He took a sharp turn towards Israel, but now he needs to try to show some daylight and distance as the elections move into high gear. And let's talk about just yesterday, right? The president issues this executive order as he's flying to Michigan. Now, why is Michigan interesting? Because Michigan is, there's a city, there's a, that's a city, an, uh, an area near Detroit called Dearborn, which is home to the most Arabs and Muslims inside the United States. Now, they are obviously very upset with the president and the position that he's taken on the war against Hamas and Israel. And there's the really tragic death toll that we're seeing coming out of Gaza. And there is a tragedy unfolding in Gaza for the Palestinian people. We can recognize that. I would say it's Hamas to blame, but put that aside for a moment. He's under a lot of pressure. Michigan, if he loses Michigan, not because these Arabs will vote, these Arab Americans will vote for Trump, but they just might stay home. That would give the state to Trump and that could give Trump the victory in the election this coming November. Right. So although, he has although, what to be concerned about. Right. Although, as Dan Sinor has pointed out a, a few times, um, the uh, the Arab vote in Michigan, I believe, is only a swing of about 1%. So if he's relying upon that 1%, then he's in more serious hot water than 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 than, uh, than he needs to be in. This is true. However, in these swing states, we've seen. I mean, let's not go. Let's go. Let's not go too far back in time. But you know, to two thousand when it was the Bush Gore election, right? And uh, look what happened in Florida. It was a handful of votes that determined that election. This is going to be a tough election for President Biden. And it's not just the Arabs in the Arab Americans in Michigan and Dearborn. It's progressives. It's young people. It is the liberal, the more far left Democrats. He has to start to break a little more to the left. And I think this is the beginning of what we're seeing. But it's also there's something a little deeper here, Jake. And that is the um, frustration with Netanyahu. They are frustrated in Washington with Netanyahu, who they feel is not getting on board for the day after plan that they would like to see occur here, which would right. see a revitalized, emboldened Palestinian authority, a move towards normalization with the Saudis, a stable and secure Gaza with some sort of multinational force maybe in reconstruction, but more importantly for the Americans, a move and a, and a, and a road at least towards a vision of a two-state solution. Right. Prime so, Minister Netanyahu won't talk about that. Well, let's let's talk about all of that in a moment. But first of all, let's just focus on the domestic uh, American politics just to finish that, that section, um, because it really matters, doesn't it? It feels to me like Biden is trying to really unify his party. I mean, he's, you know, the American people are, broadly speaking, polls have shown on the side of Israel by some margin um, or across the board. Uh, and yet within his party, 
members of his party and and parliamentarians um there's a split isn't there and so you think that this move of of the executive order is a, is, is is a way of trying to get the left wing of his party more into the tent so there's a unified party going into the election in the big picture 100% right he needs to he needs to get the more progressive part and flank of the democrats back on board and back with him it's not just obviously the arab americans in michigan but i mean keep in mind there are polls that are showing that uh trump is up 5 points in michigan alone and and that is something that is going to be very crucial for the president to try to narrow that gap as we move closer to to November, but he's got a lot of problems within his own party. Senators, we've seen letters that have been written just in the last few weeks of senators who are going to reevaluate the the support and aid, military aid to Israel. So this is something that's really, he wants to see this wind down. He wants to be able to move beyond it. And he wants to show that he has some credit for actually cracking the whip on Israel a bit. This, I guess, in their mind, is a way to do that without undermining the war effort to an extent, right? Right, right. right. And it giving really Israel what it needs to fight Hamas. It doesn't really mean anything because these guys aren't going to come to America anyway. One of them at least is in prison already. Uh, it's a symbolic gesture to placate the left of his party. And of course, right. there, was, um, there was a significant vote, wasn't there, yesterday where two members of his party voted the wrong way. Yeah. So, I mean, look, again, there is a lot of discontent within his party. There are people who are not happy at all. And it's not just the Bernie Sanders types. I mean, we've seen other more mainstream senators, Chris Murphy uh, from from Connecticut and others who are really calling to to reevaluate what's going on here. Right. They, they are all in an election season. Let You know, remember that in America, when you come a presidential election, which is held every four years. So that's again, it's a it's a. a an election for the House of Representatives, so for congressmen, it's an election for some of the Senate, right? Because that's elections that are held every six years. Some of those senators are up for re-election. They really are all feeling a bit of pressure right now, especially if you're coming from a district where you have a significant Democratic majority or a liberal progressive contingent that you have to make sure that they will vote for you. And this is something that's going to accompany us, I would say, for a while. And by the way, just on that point, I think that's another reason why the clock is ticking for Israel. We don't have indefinite amount of time for the high intensity stage of this conflict. Right. Well, let's swing things back to Israel then. I mean, how do you think um, this move of the executive order was taken by the Netanyahu administration? Do you think that they felt that it was a, a breaking of a fragment, fragmenting of support for Israel in any way, or do they see it purely as a domestic as a domestic issue? Look, there's two ways to look at it. You know, on the one hand, you could say, it, like we were just saying, you know, this is a cracking of the whip. It's sending a message. And it's you could even look at it positively to some extent, right, by saying, OK, they're not denying us spare parts. They're not stopping the delivery of weapons. They're doing this to send a message that they're upset with us. Let's 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 be thankful that it's this and not something else that we really need at the moment. On the other hand, you could say we're in for some trouble. Right. And and this is maybe what that represents. And Israel, which might itself be entering an election season when this uh, war winds down a bit more, and who knows what's going to happen here politically, this is going to be one of those issues. Netanyahu is quiet, hasn't said a word since yesterday when that uh, executive order came out. 
the people who did speak up were, of course, the more right-wing people, like like Batsal Smutrich, the finance minister, the head of the religious Zionist party, who already is in persona non grata in Washington and in the United States. And he's been, he slammed back really hard at Biden, but he doesn't yeah. care. He's not looking to work with Biden. He's not looking to go to America. And his constituents are those settlers there and his voters are the settlers themselves. So he, he of course has to pay lip service to them and be their ultimate defender. Right. So let's, let's talk about um, Netanyahu and the day after we've had a couple of headlines over the past few days that I think took people by surprise in Britain and in the States. Uh, David Cameron, Lord Cameron, the foreign secretary said uh, at a dinner that the UK would consider a unilateral recognition of the Palestinian state and um, and there are reports that Congress or the, the American administration is considering doing the same. So it does seem as if there's a sort of pincer movement of, of saber rattling coming from Britain and the states in this regard. Um, what does all this mean uh, with regard to the day, the day after in Israel? You know, I think that Israel is making a crucial mistake, and I think our leadership is making a mistake by not outlining what the day after looks like. Right? There's a there's it's very there's a lot of vague descriptions of what Israel wants to see: the elimination of Hamas, a new security reality. Okay, but how does that practically happen? And what the Americans and I think also the British talk about, and our other allies around the world, is we need to get back on a track for a two-state solution. Now, personally, I think, yes, ultimately, we have to find a way to disengage and separate from the Palestinians that will ultimately, hopefully, culminate in a Palestinian state. I don't think it's possible in the years to come, but it is something that we should all be working towards, and it's something that we should say that is the objective, that is the declared goal. The fact that Israeli leaders are not able to say any of that, on the contrary, they're saying we're not going to have any of that, creates a lot of frustration, I think, among our allies who have been very supportive. You know, you and I were both just about a week and a half ago at the uh, Conservative Friends for Israel luncheon where you had 20 cabinet ministers, you had the prime minister, David Cameron was also there, and you listened to Rishi Sunak's speech and really remarkable, what a, what a, what a stand by the side of Israel, but... I think that we can't take that for granted. They expect to see a quid pro quo in the sense that Israel is going to move in the direction that they anticipate should be the right one. Netanyahu can't do that, though, because of his political constraints, right? Because, again, if Smutrich and Ben Gvir and others who will have will, will bolt his coalition the second he would endorse a right. two-state solution, that, that's what we're dealing with. Right. So in a way, Netanyahu is in, is in a bind because... If his right wing supporters in cabinet leave, he's sunk. And so he he has no political bandwidth to accept the package that the West and the Saudis are trying to uh, impose upon Israel. Correct. I mean, you know, you would expect that in a time of war like the one that we're fighting, which I think we all agree. And even people who are not the biggest supporters of Israel understand after October 7th that this is not sustainable and something does need to change. The prime minister and the cabinet should be doing what's right for the country, not what's right for their political survival. Right. And unfortunately, we are in a bind of biblical proportions for the prime minister uh, who is on trial. His trial is continuing all this week. There were hearings about his criminal trial. Remember, he's on trial for bribery, fraud and breach of trust. He's got the prospect of jail hovering over his head. He's got the prospect of losing his coalition, and he believes deeply that he has to stay in power to defeat the trial. So he needs to stay as prime minister for his own survival. But at the same time, that 
clashes with what's right for the country. And and this is a a massive handicap that the Israeli people are are carrying with them throughout this period. Right. But let's just unpick a few um, sort of areas that have been a little bit confused uh, in the past few days. So one is that Netanyahu said he wouldn't accept a two-state solution, but there was a sense in which he was finding a narrow opening where he said that he wouldn't accept a Palestinian state because that would mean that it would be militarized, a military state and that would compromise Israel's security. So there was a little window of saying, well, if there was a demilitarized state, then I might accept it. He didn't say that, but there was that there was that opening, wasn't there? I'll go even further. He, he In other speeches, in other statements he's made, he said, how could I accept the Palestinian Authority to take over the West Bank when they incite in their education system, when they have the pay for slavery, right? they have laws that pay terrorists to murder Jews, when they have corruption in their institutions? So you could read that as a naysayer, or you could read it as he's actually outlining the path to allow the Palestinian Authority to enter into Gaza. What I would have liked to see, though, based on what you're saying and what I'm saying, is no problem. Outline that path for us. Explain, talk in the positive. Say, I understand that the Palestinian Authority is the best partner and is the future for possible stability, because there's just no one else, right? The, the Saudis aren't lining up to enter into Gaza and to rule 2.2 million Palestinians. So what we need to happen is for there to be the Palestinian Authority, but we need a Palestinian Authority that's not corrupt, that doesn't pay ter terrorists, that doesn't incite in their education system, that has new leadership. Why not speak that way? Say, if that happens, then I'd be happy for them to come in and to take right. over the Gaza Strip. Right. And and the, the, the package that's being put forward by the Saudis and the international community is not a Palestinian state. It's a pathway to a Palestinian state, right? I mean, it's it's a commitment that that's the direction of travel, um, and so we could and 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 the prize for that would be Israeli normalization with Saudi Arabia, which would be a pretty significant achievement. And so, if there is this future whereby you've got a Palestinian state that's demilitarized, that isn't a threat next to Israel with Saudi normalization and everything that would bring around the region, that obviously would be. A good, uh, you know, and with Hamas out of power and dealt with in Gaza, that looks like the end of the Israeli Arab and even the Israeli Palestinian conflict, right? Halavai, as we say in Hebrew, right? I wish, <laughs> you know, the, the definitely the Saudi normalization is like the cherry that's being dangled in our front of our eyes for us to see that we should embrace, we should be embracing this plan that's been presented by the Americans and others. So we understand that there's a huge benefit at the end of the tunnel. The 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 I, I agree that the, this overarching plan is is the right move. The the, the question though, the, the the problem's in the details, right? Mm -hmm. And can we effectively remove Hamas from power? By the way, it ties back to what we spoke about before. Why has Biden not called for a ceasefire? Because he understands also that if he wants this larger plan to take root. He needs for Israel to eliminate the Hamas leadership because if Hamas is still in charge of Gaza, forget about it. None of this yeah. is going to happen. So yeah. it's all interconnected. And that's why, again, you would want to have everybody on the same page and working towards the same goal. Right. I, I, you know, I think almost, Jake, that Israel, because of the nature of the October 7th attacks, we really have sympathy and solidarity in a way that we didn't have before from large parts of the international community. 
we should be leveraging that in a way to achieve things that we weren't able in the past. But the politics in Israel are getting in the way. And, th and that is wrong. That shouldn't be happening. Right. But even even that aside, there are other obstacles in this pathway to the two state solution that the international community is favoring. I mean, there are there are the old obstacles, right? There's what you do. What do you do with the settlements? What do you do with Jerusalem? Do you divide it? Do you keep it united? What do you do with the old city? What do you do with Palestinian, quote unquote, refugees? There's, there's all that stuff that we all know about. Right. But then there's also this idea, which isn't new, but it suddenly got new focus, which is that the Palestinians have been gripped in a uh, to some to some greater or lesser extent in a in in a, the bloodlust of extremism since before the foundation of Israel since the 1920s and even before that, and they've never really managed to convincingly, properly, wholeheartedly recognize the right of Jews to live in that land. And from there comes pay to slay. From there comes Hamas. Actually, from there comes this. The PLO uh, approach of of trying to get the Jews out of Israel by a death by a thousand cuts approach of terrorism, and and that is not a small thing, and it means that there isn't really any Palestinian leader or selection of leaders who you could turn to to say, get rid of this stuff because they're all tinged with it. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, what you said is one hundred percent true and accurate, and it's it's such a unfortunate reality because. Things could be so different if there was the right leadership, if there was the right culture and the right society on the other side. Unfortunately, on, on both sides, actually, as you on, on both sides, too. But, I, but I'll put the onus on them, because if, yeah. if, for example, you had I mean, let's be honest for a moment. If the Hamas laid down its arms, returned our hostages, said, you know what, we, we don't want to fight Israel anymore. Let's let's turn this region into something incredible. Israelis would jump at that opportunity. I mean, we've seen Israel do this time after time, right? Whether it was with Egypt, it was with Jordan, it was the constant continuous attempts to reach peace with the Palestinians since the Oslo Accords of the 90s and with the Abraham Accords, of course. You know, I, I think that what we what we do need is definitely new leadership, but we also have to do more immediate is de-radicalize the, the Palestinian Authority and the, and the whole Palestinian society, right? What we we we've kind of given a pass on that. We've allowed for textbooks to incite against us. We've allowed for their their school system to call for our uh, dis destruction, right? Uh, we've allowed for UNRWA to turn into what it is, and and we're seeing now what exactly that United Nations agency has become. It's time for deradicalization to become a big piece of this, and I think there's an opportunity. Actually, I know that within the war cabinet, for example, there's a there's a disagreement between some members who want to connect de-radicalization with reconstruction and other who say, if there's not going to be de-radicalization, if we're not going to change the society and it's going to take time, it's going to take years, but that's the path towards peace. Cause if you can change the society and get rid and create another generation that of people who actually want to live in coexistence with you, then you can actually achieve amazing peace. Right, but it's not only de-radicalization that needs to be done. It's also an anti-corruption drive uh, and also the, the, the instilling a basic level of administrative competence in the Palestinian Authority. And what we're, what you're talking about is creating something which doesn't exist in the region, really, which is a democratic Arab state that isn't corrupt, that isn't authoritarian, that doesn't incite against Jews, uh, and that is is competent and is a sort of, it's sort of like a a Western democracy 
in the Middle East, run by the people of that region, that doesn't exist anywhere else. No, it doesn't exist. But why should Israel accept less than that, right? In other words, Israel should accept a, a, a state next to it that's run by an authoritarian leader with terrorist groups. I mean, what country would accept that reality? So if we really want sustainable peace, that's what we have to work towards. And that's why, again, tying back to what we spoke about before, I think the mistake of the Biden administration by trying to create this equivalency, for example, is since you have an opportunity to use your pressure, your money, the, the huge amounts of aid that the British are giving, that the Americans are giving, that the Europeans are giving, to actually force and compel the Palestinian Authority to make these changes. Right. Abu Mazen is an example. His 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 time has passed. Right. By the way, I think Netanyahu's time has passed too, right? Yeah. But yeah. but but Abu Mazen has to go. He was elected for a four-year term almost 20 years ago. Yeah. We need a new leader who is able to actually work with Israel and understand that change is what's needed and is possible, and we can actually work together to achieve right. it. But, but the thing is, I mean, I, to I totally agree with you that, that Israel shouldn't settle for anything less and cannot settle for anything less if its security is to be guaranteed. But what I'm saying is that you know, even Israel cannot create miracles in somebody else's prospective country with people no. who are not Israeli. You know, you, you cannot make something happen that cannot happen from its own side. And it strikes me that this drive towards the two-state solution that we've seen all sounds wonderful. As we've seen that like, the end goal would be great normalization with the Saudis, you know, as a secure state, the end of Hamas, all the rest of it. But the missing piece of the puzzle is the Palestinians themselves. How can they, how can we find the people there? How they can find, how can they find the people who can stand up and take on this responsibility? You know, I don't control the Palestinian Authority and I and I and and Israel doesn't. And we can't force them to change in a way that they don't want to. But what we can do, and this would be, I, I can be critical of my my own. And my one of my big problems has long been that we Israelis have not decided what it is that we want, right? If, for example, we want to annex all of the Judea and Samaria, all of the West Bank, make it part of Israel, Netanyahu has the government to do that. He could pass a law tomorrow in the Knesset and annex the West Bank. If he wants to work towards this two-state solution because he understands that that is the objective, even if it's 25, 30 years from now, there are steps that we can take on the ground to start working towards that. By the way, that includes something very simple, talking to the other side, which we don't have today. So... We don't, I, I I don't like, I'm not fond of Abu Mazen and the current Palestinian Authority, but they're fighting, they're against terrorism. They're not uh, active in engaging and attacking Israel. They might speak out of two sides of their mouth, right, yeah. with laws and stuff, 100%. But the Palestinian Authority security forces are coordinating with Israel. There, there is room to right. grow and to build on, but we have to decide what it is that we want, and we don't, because instead we're 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 bogged down by our politics. Right. We're not and outlining a vision of what it is that we want. Remember, Zionism, Jake, was about Israel and the Jews seizing the 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 decision making process, deciding for themselves and determining their own fate. That's what we did here. We left the the the, the, the diaspora to establish a state here that's independent, that's our own, that we can determine what it is going, what's going to happen to us. Why are we not doing that now? Why are we creating again a vacuum to get Biden to shove something down our throat, to get Sunak to shove something down our throat, or Schultz to shove something down our throat? It's up to us. Right. And part of that is, is, is connected to the failure of Netanyahu's concept you know, manage, managing Hamas, managing Hezbollah. We know they want to kill us and they've got the resources to do so, but with our military edge, we can contain them. And in a way that's defined 
Netanyahu's period in power where he doesn't make any bold moves or decisions. He sort of manages things and keeps things quiet. And in a way, that's worked for Israelis. There's been a long period of peace uh, under that sort of approach. Um, but that came to an end on October the 7th, didn't it? Um, but let's move on to talk a little bit just before we finish about Iran and Hezbollah, because there's been a lot of speculation about whether October the 7th was linked to the uh, peace accords with the Arab states and whether it was an attempt by Iran uh, and, and obviously Hamas to derail that normalization process. Presumably, if this two-state drive shows any sign of bearing fruit, fruit that may provoke Hezbollah to join, to, to, to join the war. And actually, Israel might have to take on Hezbollah anyway. Hezbollah, this, this, I call it the mini war. I mean, you know, people talk about how, like, is the third Lebanon war coming? We're in it right now, right? What's been happening since October 7th, daily attacks by Hezbollah with rockets, with anti-tank missiles. The fact that Israel has had to cede territory to Hezbollah, essentially, by creating a buffer zone inside our own territory goes against everything of our national security principles and right. doctrine. And because like, like 100,000 Israelis from the north have had to move down. Correct. 100,000 have had to move out. And we've had to push people out of their out of their towns and out of their homes, as opposed to creating this buffer zone in Lebanon, which is where it should. We don't have strategic depth in Israel. And I think you saw that on October 7th. The second they cross the border, they're inside our homes. Same thing applies to the north. Can we turn the tables on this? Of course, but that would probably mean a war. And the IDF in the north, in the northern command, and talking to IDF officers, they're preparing for that. Right? That that is something that is definitely possible. If the war winds down in the south, there's a hope that maybe Hezbollah will stop its attacks. But that doesn't mean that Hezbollah will leave the border. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. The problem is how do you get a hundred thousand people to go back to their homes? And that is where. The Europeans and the Americans and others, the French particularly, are trying to come up with some deal that sees Hezbollah move to the most famous river in the Middle East called the Litani River. Everyone knows about this river, the Litani River. It's a small little stream, but it's a, you know about 20 kilometers north of the border with Israel. And if they only moved north of there, everything would be okay. Because that's, that's where they should be, according to the UN resolution at the end of the 1701, last... 1701, correct, from 2006 at the end of the Second Lebanon War, which they violated... We see how much they violated that today with the attacks they're launching against Israel. But again, even if they go north of the Litani River, A, they won't stay there. B, we're just kicking the can down the road. The, 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 the ultimate clash between Israel and Hezbollah is unfortunately coming. And it's coming because you have, again, I think the lesson of October 7th is that you have this group that is there, that is bent on our destruction, that has amassed horrific numbers of rockets and missiles that cover and encompass the entire state of Israel. We shouldn't think that they're going to be engaged diplomatically or there's some way to contain them. That's the lesson of October 7th. It's not going to work. Exactly. And actually, one um, reason why uh, Hezbollah hasn't fully joined the war, uh, people are speculating, is because Iran is keeping them in reserve so that if Iran, if Tehran gets attacked on its own soil, because of it, with the strike on its nuclear program, for example, they will be able to unleash Hezbollah. Uh, and so they're sort of keeping that hanging over Israel, which brings us to Tehran, which is behind all of this in, in some to some extent. Um, how do you assess the American posture with regard to Iran over the past four years? And where do you think it's going to go next? Very disappointing. I think that the Americans are making a tragic mistake 
that is going to haunt them for years to come. And I hate to use such harsh terms and I hate to sound like some crazy neocon, but um, there is a war coming with Iran, whether we like it or not. Now, I think that it's possible to avoid that war. The way to do that is to present the Iranians with a credible military threat, for the Iranians to genuinely fear for their own survival. But instead of doing that, and let's look at the region just for a moment. Since October 7th, what's happened? Israel's fighting Hamas, an Iranian proxy. Israel's fighting Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy. Israel's getting attacked by the Houthis, an Iranian proxy. The Iranians are causing the most chaos and bloodshed in the world at the moment. And what's happening? They're getting away with murder and immunity. So if you are the Ayatollah or Raisi, the president, or the head of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, sitting somewhere in uh, in Tehran, by the way, Britain should be uh, uh, banning and and not sanctioning, but outlawing or whatever it is, declaring Prescri a terrorist group. Prescribing, yeah. Prescribing the IRGC, which they have yet to do. Yeah. Put that aside. You are rubbing your hands in glee because your, your plan's working. Everybody's focused on Israel. Everybody's focused on the proxies, but not on you. That's a bad and dangerous lesson. Now, even what happened when Britain and the U.S. attacked Yemen and Houthi targets, think of what that message sends. What does it show the world? Or what does it show Iran? Is that you can use proxies, you and but only when it disrupts the shipping lanes, only when it <laughs> hits the pocket, do the Americans and the Brits stand up and do something. Right. It's a, it's a bad message. And the Iranians, by the way, we see from the IAEA, they're accumulating more uranium and rich to over 60%. They're racing towards a nuclear weapon. They're lining up the ingredients and components that they will need for a fast breakout when they decide to do it. It's going to haunt us. Now, right. we, can, we, can, we can stop them without firing a single bomb or missile by just saying very clearly to, to the Ayatollahs, we're coming for you. We're not coming for the Houthis or Hezbollah or Hamas. It's you who's going to be in the crosshairs. And unfortunately... The Biden administration is not doing that. And I think that that's a huge mistake. Right. I mean, this is the um, octopus doctrine that Natalie Bennett laid out when he was in power. And it's something that I've got great uh, sympathy for. But from the Biden point of view, think about it What from, from what he's saying is that he doesn't want to risk an escalation of the conflict to draw Iran into an all out war via an attack on Iranian soil, particularly when an election is just a few months away. Now, in my view, uh, if you look at the precedent, whenever the Americans have gone hard against Iran, for example, when Trump authorized the killing of Qasem Soleimani in 2020, I believe, everyone talked about panicking about World War Three, and nothing meaningful came from the Iranians. They're all mouth, aren't they? They're a paper tiger to a large extent we've seen over the years. The, the, there's a lot of, you know, threats and, and saber rattling and beating of the war drums, but they are weak and they are vulnerable, and it's about the world taking a tough stand and a strong stand. And I think that, that, that that's the opportunity that, that, by the way, it's the opportunity that October 7th presents us with, that what was can no longer be. Us in Israel, I think we pretty much understand that, and that's the change that we are working to achieve to create a new security reality in Gaza and hopefully on the border with Lebanon, but it has to be bigger. And it's an opportunity for the world to take advantage of this also, and to say, Iran, we're going to put you in your place. We're going to hold you accountable. It's no longer a game of proxies. It's going to include also your nuclear program. I mean, imagine for a moment that the, the, the Biden, who's now contemplating what exactly but we're speaking before we've seen the American retaliation to the killing of those three soldiers by an Iraqi uh, 
militia proxy of Iran right, in a drone attack in Jordan a few days ago. And the president has said he's he, he knows what he's going to do. He's prepared the response. We don't yet know what it's going to include. Imagine if he attacks Iran and he sends a clear message to the Iranians. No more. Stop. You are vulnerable. That sends a message that I think will resonate for, for a long time here in the Middle East. Right. And, and, and that could easily be done because it seems like America has forgotten that the American economy dwarfs the Iranian economy. The American armed forces dwarfs the Iranian armed forces. And that's before you even take into account America's allies, such as, most importantly, Israel, of course. But one person who has not forgotten that power imbalance in our favor is Donald Trump. And this is the man who may be, once again, in the White House in just a few short months' time. Do you think that would be a good thing? <laughs> you want to get me in trouble here. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Look, Trump comes with a whole bag of problems uh, of his own. And who knows what type of Trump is going to come into the White House. Israelis tend to think, oh, he's great for us. But you don't know that. And, you know, a Trump who's basically without any restrictions and doesn't have to get reelected is a Trump who could do whatever he wants and could just write off Israel and say, I don't even care about you. You're more of a headache than, than, than an ally. So I think we do have to tread carefully. On the other hand, I'll tell you what I hear from people within his vicinity and Republican officials who are very close to the president who have told me that if he was president, now things would look different. Again, take that with a grain of salt. I do not know. But, but I, but, the proof will be in what happens. But you mentioned Qasem Soleimani. I think that was an, an impressive moment by President Trump, where he decided to remove that terrible actor from this earth and 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 try to send that message to the Iranians, but also put them on, on call or on standby that they are in the crosshairs. And that's important to get that message again across to the Iranians. Right. And based on his previous track record in the Middle East with regard to pulling out of the America, uh, of the Iranian nuclear deal, the support for Israel, uh, the uh, deal of the century didn't happen, let's face it, but uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, that would suggest that maybe if he came in, it wouldn't be such a bad thing, at least for the Middle East, maybe. Maybe. A big maybe. Because <laughs> again, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. It, you know, I think that even Netanyahu, when he thinks about at night while he's lying in bed, after he thinks about his trial and after he thinks about his political trouble, and he thinks about who do I want, really, Trump or Biden? Biden, at least, is, an, is a known commodity, is an actor that you kind of can predict and, and, and work with within boundaries and understand where things are going. Trump is, is, is not that stable. And right. that could be you, you upset him in a way it gets very personal. You don't know what he's going to do. And I think you have to be careful with exactly how that plays out. Right. Like the, the, the madman doctrine is is handy when it comes to your enemies, but it makes it a little bit difficult to be an ally. Well, Yakov, thank well you said. so much, so much for your for your time today. I always like speaking to you because not only do we look alike, but we also agree on many things. And it's always a pleasure to speak to somebody who agrees with you. Um, so thank you for, jo for joining me. And I hope to see you soon either here or, or in Israel. Thank you very much, Jake. It was great to be with you in the Jewish Chronicle. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.